0: So we have uh, really looked at everything we've seen about the Holy Spirit in this series under the heading, I keep saying, of the title of the course, Lord and Life Giver. And so we've really focused in on the life-giving and perfecting operations of the Holy Spirit in all that God does. So what are some of those life-giving operations that we've talked about so far? In other words, what does the Spirit do? What have we learned about so far that the Spirit does? What? What? redemption we're getting we're kind of getting there now yeah we've seen that in the big picture he perfects God's redeeming work that's really what we're gonna zero in on um, today leading yeah we're gonna deal with some of the leading kind of the guiding uh, stuff a little bit later on in the course in the Christian life yeah Terry creation yeah so the spirit was a perfecter of God's creation uh, bringing order out of yeah, or bringing order and life out of this lifeless, chaotic mass of creation, and then sustaining that life in providence, governing and sustaining the created world. And then we learned about revelation, how the Spirit uh, delivers the revelation, the life-giving words of God, and continues to do so even as they've been written. But He continues to work and make the word live. And then we learned last week about what is this? What did we learn last week that the Spirit does? We kind of walk through the story of Scripture, looking at the Spirit doing what? Indwelling. That's right. And so we're kind of racking the brain for the past weeks. I know, I know how it goes. When I'm in that seat, I'm like, what? A, what on earth have we talked? Indwelling. That the, the Spirit as the indwelling presence of the Triune God among God's people. First in the old old covenant Israel, He was with them. Then in Christ, we have we have. Him um, indwelling Christ in a a special and unique way. And then Christ died, resurrected, ascended, pouring out his spirit to indwell his people within us the way he was within Christ in his earthly ministry. So sharing the spirit uh, that he himself has. So um, over the next two lessons, we're going to study a set of life-giving operations. Uh, Don said redemption. We're focusing on the individual's experience of salvation. And today we're going to look at that first moment, conversion, the first moment of coming to be a Christian. And then next week we'll look at the Holy Spirit's ongoing involvement in the Christian life. Actually, after that we're going to start talking about, more corporately, the church, and then also the, the, the farther future, uh, what does it look like. But today we're looking about this moment of conversion. Now, um, salvation brings us to participate in the new creation. And uh, it's we could say it's like the first taste of, heavenly glory that will have in its fullness in the last day when Christ returns uh, but it's helpful to think about everything the spirit is doing is bringing life and salvation thinking of salvation not just as the spirit you know getting me out of hell or getting me out of judgment or out of sin it is that but the broader context is the spirit is creating this whole new creation out of God's creation that had fallen into sin And it centers on the person of Christ, and it extends to the whole heaven and earth. But we get to participate in it as individuals by means of this experience of conversion, this experience of going from death to life. And that's what today we're talking about. Um, And so we'll again start, as we've often done in this class, with a Trinitarian perspective. How does salvation work among the divine persons? Um, I've said many times, uh, let's see if you can finish the sentence. The, the external works of the Trinity are... Anyone get this one? I know. I know this is... <laughs> the external works of the Trinity are... are Did anyone remember the word that I finished the sentence with? Undivided. The external works of the Trinity are undivided. Um, and it's okay if you didn't remember that. But I'm just trying to see if if any... That would have been a real, like, advanced level thing. But meaning... Everything the Trinity does, everything God does, the Father, Son, and the Spirit are all doing. Okay, But then we've also talked about how each person has their own kind of mode of operation within those works. And so the Father, and, and those the way that each person works in the divine works, reflect their eternal order. So the Father is the unbegotten one eternally. So when it comes to the divine works in time, he's the initiator. And then the Son, in eternity, he's the begotten one. He's eternally begotten, not made, begotten of the Father. And so in time, in the divine works in time, he is the mediator, the executor, the one who, we could say, pulls it off. <laughs> um, and then the Holy Spirit, in eternity, is spirated. He is, proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so he's the last in this, this order of three. Doesn't mean he's any less divine, but he's just the third in this order, eternally, and so in the divine works in time, he's the last, he's the perfecter. He's the life giver. We've, we've seen this. This is really what we talked about in the second lesson a lot. And so applying this to salvation. Well, the father then would be the initiator of salvation. The son is the one who executes the plan with his. He's the one who comes and is incarnated and dies and is resurrected and ascends back to the father. He's the one who is the object of saving faith. He's the center of the plan, the Son. But then, uh, the Spirit is the one sent by the Father and the Ascended Son to complete the work of redemption, to perfect it. And and we could kind of sum up that whole perfecting work under the label of applying. He's the one who applies redemption. It's been said, the Son is the one whose role is redemption accomplished, and the Spirit is the one whose role is redemption applied. Christ bought it, the Spirit delivers it to us, into our actual experience, into our actual lives. Uh, John Calvin famously, in his institutes, he asked this question of all these goods that Christ has won for us in his coming, in his redemption, how does it become ours? It's just out there, it's Christ's. How does it become mine? How does it become yours? That that link has everything to do with the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to be talking about today. how Everything that is Christ's becomes ours in redemption yes amen holy <laughs> it's beautiful it's very good. it's it's good news it's very good news so any questions about that overview we're going to start talking about why we need the spirit even to begin with in terms of coming to salvation and then we're going to start talking about all the things the spirit is doing in bringing us into salvation so any questions so far or thoughts of oh, that hallelujah that's a good one <laughs> Let's talk about why we need the Holy Spirit. Um, To understand the Spirit's life giving role in salvation, we really need to start with what are we saved from? Everything will make sense, make better sense if we start with well, what's our plight? What's our starting position? And the Bible uses the terminology of spiritual death to describe natural man, those who are born in Adam, who are both guilty of sin and inclined towards sin from the heart. And probably the clearest text in the Bible to describe this condition is Ephesians 2. Would someone read Ephesians 2 verses 1 and 2? you volunteer for that? Someone's there. Yeah, Paul, thank you. It was uh, 2, 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. And you were dead in your
1: trans-, trans... And you were dead in your trans trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince, the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons
0: of disobedience. Yeah, so this is a devastating description of natural man, and, and the first thing he says is you were dead in trespasses and sins. So you And then you walked in this course that's the world's course, the world's path, and then behind that, it's the path that it's really of uh, the prince of the power of the air. It's Satan's course that he has the world walking on. And you were dead in sin walking on that course. And then a few verses later, he'll say in verse 5 when he kind of says, but, but God, you know, he starts talking about how God got us out of it. In verse 5, he says, uh, he made us alive together with Christ. And that's kind of the, so the, the, the solution to deadness is pretty self-evident. It's being made alive. And if we want to better understand, so in these two verses we have a lot about what does it mean to be dead in sin. It means to be kind of slavishly following the course that Satan has is leading the world on of disobedience. And we get more actually about, I think if you look later at Ephesians 4.18, you get a, a fill, more filled out description. What, is, what does spiritual deadness mean? Would someone be willing to read Ephesians 4.18? Talking about non-believers, the they there as non-believers. Yeah, Didi. good what are some problems in that verse <laughs> what are some things that are bad about this what I'm I'm interpreting this as again another description of spirit dead in sin yeah there's an alienation or a exclusion you're separated from the life of God well that that's why I take this as spiritual death right it's you're separated from life the, the, the life of God what else a hard heart yeah ignorance of the truth there's a lack of knowledge or understanding and and which is similar to earlier in the verse darkened in their understanding so there's 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 a uh, failure of knowledge there's a there's a heart condition which probably would have would entail affections will and knowledge uh, and then there's distance from the life of God so this is what spiritual deadness means we looked earlier in first uh, Corinthians two fourteen. I think when we talk about revelation about the natural the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him that's the same that's the dead in sin description uh, kind of from another perspective this intellectual darkness and ignorance is is a characteristic of the spiritually dead condition so if that's the case what are we going to need in order to be saved to be brought back to life. Yeah. Brought to life. brought to life, yeah. Regeneration is a word I heard, being brought to life. Um, so there's there's a whole set of things we need. We could look at what Christ did. We need a tone atonement, right? We need forgiveness. We need imputed righteousness. So we need all these basket of goods that the son buys for us at the cross. But then you but we're in the perspective we're looking at spiritual deadness that introduces a host of other needs, right? We need to, cause Christ could buy all these things for us and say, here it is. And if, as long as we're spiritually dead, if we're saved through faith, well, no one's going to believe that's the problem is no one's going to believe in this condition. We need to be made alive in order to receive the benefits of what Christ has done for us. So that's why, uh, that's what we're focusing on a lot today is how the spirit does this. Uh, we need the Holy Spirit to do something in us to make us able to believe. I hope it's clear, just looking at these verses, that the natural person who's dead in sin can't believe on his or her own. Okay, it's just not possible. <laughs> Everything about being hardened and hard and separated from the life of God and ignorant and darkened, you can't believe without God intervening. So that's the problem. I'm just going to start talking about the solution. Any, But any before we go on, any thoughts or questions about that? Hmm. Yeah, and we're, we're going to get there. That's going to be a big text we look at soon in John 3, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. It's all about this. Who can enter the kingdom of heaven? Who can see the kingdom of heaven? It has to do with being born again, being born from above. Yeah. So that's the what we're saved from, the condition we're saved from. Now let's look at... Um, how he applies salvation to us. We're going to start with indwelling, baptism, and union with Christ. These are all kind of different ways of saying the same thing. Now, salvation occurs in a sequence that really stretches all the way from eternity past. You read in Ephesians 1 about God choosing us in Christ in eternity before the foundation of the world. It stretches all the way to glory in eternity future. And there's this sequence or order of like how salvation actually plays out. Uh, that's been called, the fancy Latin term is the Ordo Salutis, you may have heard of that, or just the Order of Salvation. And um, if we just focus in on what we're looking at today, that moment that we come from darkness to light, the moment of our salvation, the moment our salvation begins really, of our experience, there's a whole bunch of blessings that kind of break over our heads like a spiritual downpour. And uh, now, it is helpful to think through the sequence of them, Not every point in this lesson is exactly like everything has to be right where it is. But there are a few sequential things that really do matter. And by talking about a sequence, what we're not saying is that you are, let's say we're going to say regeneration comes before faith. That's a big thing that we're going to make, a big point we're going to make. That doesn't mean that the Spirit makes us alive and then like a week later we may decide to believe. Like, oh, now that I'm alive, oh, I'll believe in Christ. It's not separated in time. But it is separated, it is in a sequence in order of cause. One of those things causes the other, and not vice versa. That's why we put it in order. What's sort of the? It all happens like at once, but what's, what is causing what? That's kind of the question that matters. So um, we're going to sort of look at this in an order of things that all happen at once, but they happen in sort of a causal connection. And the reason I'm starting with this one, indwelling, Union with Christ baptism is because this is sort of, we could see it as all the things the Spirit does in us at the moment of conversion is almost like a wheel, and this is the hub. Like everything sort of revolves around this, but this is sort of the one thing He's doing that explains everything else. Does that make sense? Um, So this is central in terms of explaining all His work. And uh, what's in the wheel center? It's union with Christ. Um, In coming to indwell us, the Spirit joins us to Christ, and that is how we receive every blessing that we receive in salvation, is we are joined to Christ, spiritually. And the the New Testament uses a terminology of baptism to describe this. So it's interesting to to, to look at baptism with regard to the Holy Spirit. Um, Way back in the beginning of the Gospels, you have John the Baptist proclaiming, Jesus and saying, preparing the way for Jesus and saying, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's like one of his main things he has to say. John one thirty three, he says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. And he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. You see that connection? It's like, I see this heavenly kind of apocalyptic vision of The Spirit on this Jesus. And because I see that, I know he's the one who gives, he baptizes, he gives the Holy Spirit. And um, what is that event? What does it mean for Jesus to baptize with the Holy Spirit? Any guesses? When is that fulfilled? Pentecost. Very good. very, very Yeah. And, and baptize and, and it, we can kind of get tripped up on baptize cause it's a specialized term. It's like, Oh, it's, it happens back there in the baptismal. I'm going to sound, I'm going to like give away our, our like sacramentology here, what we believe uh, in our church. Baptize means immerse. It means to, to, to immerse in a, in a, uh, in a medium. Right. So um, to say baptized with the spirit means he will immerse you in the Holy spirit. He will flood you with the Holy spirit. Um, so that's what John says about Jesus. And then like, if you look at acts eleven sixteen, there's a Pentecost like experience for Cornelius's family. And Peter says, ah, this is, this is Jesus baptizing with the Holy spirit. Peter connects the dots and says, so we know Pentecost. And then these other events that kind of re echo Pentecost is that fulfillment of that baptizing with the Holy spirit, Jesus Pours out his spirit um, and immerses people in the Spirit. But what's interesting is um, being baptized into the Holy Spirit also means being baptized into Christ. So it's like, and, and it, it's hard to picture this, but it's like the Holy Spirit is this vat of glue <laughs> that Jesus is in. And uh, I mean, some of even like said, we could think of the Holy Spirit as the bond of union between the Father and the Son. And so there is something glue-like about. It. Of course, every illustration is super limited, but just bear with me. So you've been dumped into this this sticky medium. That then, what what does that do? It binds you to the others that are there. And who else is there? Well, the the son and this father. Also, the whole body of Christ is there. And so, in the logic of the kind of the, we're going to see if we look at First Corinthians twelve, the logic of Paul is. In being baptized in the spirit, you're baptized into Christ and into his body. It's all one one action. So he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, for just as the body is one. And now, by the way, this is his discussion about spiritual gifts. And he's using that body, this very important body metaphor for the church, right? So just as the body is one, our, our body is one, it has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body. So we have all these parts, but they're in union, fundamentally in union with each other because they're part of our body. So uh, so it is with Christ. Here's how he explains how that's true. For in one spirit, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So in being baptized into the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, we right in that moment are also become the body of Christ. We become members of the body. So that means we're united to Christ. We're united to each other because we have the same spirit, the Holy Spirit. If you ever wondered, like, because some of us, we know about we hear about union with Christ. We're spiritually united to Christ. And we go, that's cool. What does that mean? Like, what, what is that? The, I mean, and there's something mysterious about this, but basically if you want to know what's the glue between us and Jesus, the answer is the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the Bible's answer. What's the glue between us and Jesus It's the Holy Spirit who's also called the Spirit of Christ for that reason. Does that make sense? That's why for instance like in John 14 we've seen a few times he says he, uh, he says about the, the, the helper in verse 17 he will he is with you he will be in you and then later in verse 23 he says, the Father and I will come in and make our home with you because when the Spirit indwells and we saw this when the spirit indwells you, here come the Father and the Son. In the same, the same action. It's the same thing because the Spirit is the bond who unites us to Christ and to the Father. So, all that to say, when the Spirit comes to indwell us, we are united to Christ. We are united to Christ. We become one with Him and with His Body, the Church. And in Christ, if you've traced this phrase throughout, it becomes Paul's favorite way to describe the Christian life. And Sinclair Ferguson writes, "To be in Christ." means to share in all that Christ has accomplished those who are united to the risen Christ share in his justification adoption sanctification and glorification this is a union to Christ by the spirit which brings us the communication of redemptive blessings end quote so um, Jesus why are we why are we righteous in Christ explain why am I justified in um, how does, what does that have to do with, with Jesus? Does that make sense? I'm justified by faith. That means I'm righteous. How did I become righteous? Christ. Through Christ?
2: Our sins were laid upon Yes,
0: yes. So there's this exchange. He took our sin and he shared. So we shared everything with Christ. We shared our sin with Christ. He paid for it. He shared his righteousness with us. We're justified. Do you see how the logic of even how the gospel works is like we had to be glued to Christ. We had to be brought into union with him. And so everything we have, we have in Christ and the way we're in Christ is that we we have the spirit of Christ united us to him by faith. So we need the spirit to work in us to overcome spiritual deadness. And centrally, center of the wheel is union to Christ. And then we can kind of look at what are the spokes? What are sort of the... Other individual blessings that sort of are related to our union with Christ, the individual saving operations. Uh, okay, so we're going to move on to the next conviction and calling. Before you, any questions? Am I have I lost anyone? Questions or, or comments? I appreciate what we've heard so far. Any anything else? Yeah, Pat. Just a clarification. Note taking here. Mm-hmm. I am in Christ because the Spirit united me to Him. Mm-hmm. Is the gist of what you just yes. said? Yes. Mm-hmm. The Spirit, indwelled me, and united me to Christ. Christ, yep. So, let's talk about conviction and calling. Um, now, we're going back to this idea of being spiritually dead. The first thing the Holy Spirit has to do is make the gospel effective in our hearts. And in one sense, there, there's there's kind of two different ways the Bible uses calling. And you have to distinguish, you have to look at how, they're, how they appear in context to really see this, but... There's one sense in which, um, like Matthew 22:14 14 in Jesus' parable, he says, many are called, but few are chosen. And in the context of that parable, he means there's this declaration, this invitation to everybody who has ears, come to the banquet, and many will not come, and some do. And he says, many are called, few are chosen. What does called mean there? What is he using that word to describe? Called to salvation, like preach the gospel to that person, right? Like evangelize. So the proclamation of Jesus' gospel, his his coming, his cross, his resurrection, forgiveness of sins to, for all who believe in him. That goes out to everyone. You see it very clearly. Preach it to everyone. Uh, the Great Commission, and you see it in the Book of Acts. But distinct from that, we could call that the general call. Distinct from that, there's another kind of call that that's, can be called the effectual call, which means effective. The Holy Spirit works to make that general call effective in certain people's hearts. It actually... Has its, it actually grips certain people and brings about a positive response and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. so um, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 2 23 and 24 and you ask you you listen and ask answer me this question okay who are the who are the called in this context who is this describing okay let me let me read it we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, And folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Who are the called? What does that mean? Yeah, predestined. Okay, tease that out a bit. Who are the people? So we had three groups, right? We had, it's stumbling block to Jews. So that means most Jews won't believe. Folly to Gentiles, most Gentiles won't believe. And then there's a third group. The, those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, so in, envision a little Venn diagram, there's, there is some of both of those groups that are called the called. And what is it to them? What is the gospel to them? It's the power of God, the wisdom of God. So like Carol said, those predestined, it's believers. It's clear that these are believers, Right? The called are the ones, and they're they're called the called because they were destined to to call. so. There's a sense in which that call went out to Jews and Greeks, and a bunch of Jews said, "Ah, what a stumbling block," and a bunch of Greeks said, "Ah, what folly," and a few from both of those groups said, "This is the wisdom of God. This is salvation," and they believed. And Paul says, "Those are the called." You see, that's that's what the Spirit is doing in the effectual call. He's making that word that goes out to everyone effective to actually bring about a response in their lives. Um, Romans 8.30 is another verse that uses called in the same way to describe believers. So what does the Holy Spirit actually do in our hearts to make this happen? Well, Jesus uses the terminology of an advocate um, in John 16 in the upper room. And uh, it's translated helper. It's a really hard word to translate in one word. He uses it for the spirit throughout the upper room discourse in John. It could be various translations, helper, advocate, comforter. Um, But the idea here, especially if you look at verses 8 to 11 of John 16, is that he's actually an attorney who is convicting, which means he's exposing reality to the hearts of the hearers. He's exposing the reality of the things they're hearing about. So he says this, And when the helper comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And he had just said in that context, you will bear witness about me. So he's saying, disciples, you will be the ones, we could say, issuing the general call. (laughs) Bearing witness of Christ to everyone, all the nations. And then the Spirit is working alongside. And in that word, that testimony you give, he's working in that word to bring conviction. To expose to the heart in certain people, the reality of sin and righteousness and judgment. So he's bringing it home, we could say. And we need the Holy Spirit to do that. Yeah, Paul. On well, the
2: general call, the Holy Spirit's not working. And the actual call is when he begins to work in a person's heart. Yeah, I would
0: say, that's a great question. Is the, the Spirit, is he working in the general call? I would say um, there's a sense, almost maybe under the, under the label of providence, like there's a sense in which there's this general goodness that God is distributing to all. The rain, the sun, you hear about like in Matthew 5 and we talked about the spirit and providence. There's a sense I think in which there's a good that's being kind of canvassing the earth in the preaching of the gospel but it's only becomes good in actual experience by means of the effectual call. So I wouldn't say the spirit isn't involved in that but it's not involved in the same way, yeah. The effectual call actually working part. The general call
1: you're talking about just
0: yeah. And the Spirit's working in the in the preacher or the speaker. When you're evangelizing your friend, it doesn't matter whether they respond or not, the Holy Spirit's working in you. But if but yeah, in terms of the reception of that call, yes, the Spirit's working to make it to make it effective, yeah. May not be effective right away. It's you know, we need to be careful about how we don't want to be too narrow about it. if they don't respond right at that moment, the spirit's not doing anything. But essentially this is he is making it making it happen bringing their, bring them to see what the Word says about sin and about righteousness and about judgment? Good question. So that's calling and conviction. He has to do that. Um, and then what he does through the Word is the next step is regeneration. Regeneration. So as we hear the Word of the Gospel and the Holy Spirit brings it home in conviction, he uses it to bring spiritually dead people to life. And that is regeneration. One theologian describes it. as kind of a long... Definition, but uh, that work of the Holy Spirit, whereby he initially brings persons into living union with Christ. That's what we talk about union with Christ. He brings persons initially into living union with Christ, changing their hearts so that they who were spiritually dead become spiritually alive, now able and willing to repent of sin, believe the gospel, and serve the Lord. So, three things to point out about. One thing I like about is making alive someone who was dead. Secondly, I like how it's it, it, he puts it in terms of union with Christ, because we talked about that's the center of everything. He brings you into union with Christ and gives you life in Christ. Spiritual life in Christ. And then thirdly, we're going to talk later about, it enables a certain response of faith and repentance. We're going to talk about that later. But that's what regeneration does. Um, again, Salvation is a new creation work, and regeneration is a spiritual, us coming to experience the new creation, just like the Spirit brought the first creation um, out of out of the waters of chaos, so to speak, and brought order and life, and breathed the soul into man, the, the living creature. So we have, spiritually, He's doing the same thing in us, spiritually barren, dead sinners, and we hear the word, the gospel, and the Spirit starts sparking new life. In the same way, that's what regeneration is. And John mentioned John three, where Jesus talks about Nick, talks with Nicodemus about this, and that, we're gonna actually read it—a pretty long passage there. This is really the key biblical text on regeneration. There's a lot of others, but um, so John, would somebody be willing to read John three verses three through eight? It's kind of a longer excerpt. John three, Don, you got that? That's not confusing. Don, read John three through eight. Uh, no, verses three through eight. John chapter 3 verses 3 through 8. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born
1: again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Spirit. Do not marvel, marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who was born of the Spirit. Thank you.
0: So, you'll notice that what Jesus calls in verse 3, being born again, he, it's the same thing that he calls in verse 8, being born of the Spirit. This is the same thing. He's talking about the same thing in different ways being born again, being born of the Spirit. Another thing that's interesting is that in John, this word he uses for again could also be translated born from above. So, again and above. It's kind of ambiguous. And it's intentional ambiguity. If you, in the context of John, both of these dimensions are at play here. That there's both a vertical above and below. It's it's coming down from above, but then it's it's again. So what's happening is, um, let me see. It's a birth from heaven, not from from us. We'll talk about that in a moment. It's also a birth that moves us into a new era of salvation history. We could say that. Thinking in terms of Joel and Peter, you remember Peter is quoting from Joel 2 and on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. And he says, ah, the last days, in the last days, this will happen. And he says, basically, look, it's happening. We're in the last days. Men and women are prophesying, etc. These are the last days. That's essentially the idea is the, the future, the salvation future breaks upon you when you receive this new birth. That's why it's called the new birth sometimes or born again. Was also born from above because it originates not from man, but from God. Um, back in John 1 verses 12 and 13, John told us that the one who believes is born not of the will of man, but of God. And that's what he means by from above. It's not um, something that we generate ourselves from below. It's a radical invasion of life into our souls from the outside, from heaven. We don't choose it. We're passive. Like, Babies. Greg likes to use this illustration. Like babies don't choose to be born. They're very passive in the in the process of birth. They just find themselves having been born, <laughs> yeah, right? Like emerging into the world. Like oh, like, something happened to me, and that's basically our involvement in the new birth. Um, it's it's something that happens to us because remember, we were dead to begin with. Uh, if you start if you start putting it in us the capacity to get ourselves over this hump, you start you start. Running into problems that's being dead in sin. Um, And he also calls this being born of water in the Spirit. And then people have said, what is this water? Is he talking about baptism? Um, You also hear about in Titus 3, 5, Paul says to the the Holy Spirit's washing of regeneration. And it's, it's likely they're both calling back to the promise of the new covenant back in Ezekiel. We've looked at this earlier, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. And I'll read it. to obey my rules. Quote. That is a dense, rich promise. There's so many things he's promising to do. And just not, even, not only to identify each one, but to think about how interrelated they all are is really rich theologically. But essentially, God is promising to sprinkle with cleansing water. He's promising to give his dead people a new heart. And the new heart, thereby, causes them to obey from the heart. And what is the engine that powers all that? What else does he promise he'll do? I will put my Spirit within you. It's the Spirit within that gives that new heart. It's the Spirit within that cleanses, and that's that seems to be what Paul means in Titus three five, the washing of regeneration that he attributes to the Holy Spirit, and also what probably what Jesus in, in John three when he says, "Born of water and the Spirit," it's the cleansing, regenerating, life giving work of the Spirit. And so, remember that estrangement from the life of God we heard about in, in Ephesians four eighteen. Uh, the deadness to God, hardness of heart, ignorance. Um, the Holy Spirit comes and breathes in spiritual life and reverses all that makes us new. And that is our taste, our foretaste. Our first taste, we could say, of the new creation. That is regeneration. And it happens through the instrument of the Word. We already talked about conviction and calling. Somebody has to speak the true words of Christ, the Word of the Gospel, and the Spirit works through that. To regenerate, you have places like First Peter one twenty three. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Um, So that it all makes sense, right? Like, like this word of Christ, this gospel comes to us. The spirit makes it live, makes it work. And he gives us new life by it. Any questions or thoughts? (laughs)
1: Yeah. A question on back on John three 6, sure. where Christ says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Yeah, and that which is born of the spirit. In, in
0: uh, New American Standard, that's capitalized. Yeah, about, uh, spirit is spirit, not capitalized. Yeah. Yes, I think that's right. What he's saying is, um, when, in John, when spirit and flesh are contrasted. It's, it, it has to do, flesh is not evil in John, it's weak, it's, lo, it's, it's lower tier. There's above and below, above is heavenly, it's spirit, lower tier is earthly and flesh, which is not in itself evil, it's just lower. So he's saying, basically fleshly means can do fleshly things, but if you want a spiritual change with lowercase s, that is of a spiritual nature in us, that requires the Holy Spirit. So, the Holy Spirit, capital S, gives birth to new lowercase s spiritual life in us. Does that make sense? It's a good question. All right. Any other questions about regeneration? Thoughts? All right. Let's look at faith and repentance. Um, what happens when the Holy Spirit sparks new life in us? Well, we respond to the gospel, that word of truth that we heard, with the signs of life, which are faith and repentance. And uh, this is one—you know—I talked about this order of salutis, right? The order of salvation and all this. This is one area where it really becomes important because theologians have debated which comes first: regeneration or faith. Do we um, do we believe? Someone preaches a gospel, we believe, and then as a response to that belief God makes us alive. Can anyone think of any theological or practical problems with with that 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 way of understanding it? We believe and then God makes us alive in response to that belief. Yeah, Megan.
2: Something we did when mm-hmm. not by works.
0: Okay, so we we did something by our works, we were able to respond so, so what is that? what problem does that create?
1: It's not... That would not, not be Christ making us alive. Mm-hmm. It would be us doing something to make us alive. But we're dead, so dead people can't.
0: Yeah. Do it. it would be d- dead people helping do something to help make us come alive. It would. That's a... To me, that's the biggest theological problem: is you have to account for how emphatic spiritual deadness is, and then suddenly say, "And then we, the dead people, did something, and then God made us alive." <laughs> that's a that's a hard that'd be a hard pill to swallow. Um, what about practically? What? How does this affect our evangelism? How we talk about the gospel with non-believers? And uh, Paul's question: "That which is born of flesh is flesh." <laughs> Now which is born of spirit is spirit. How will this affect how what 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 how evangelism goes, how we do yeah, Blake.
1: Well, I think um,
0: I think it's important to highlight when we're sharing the gospel with a
1: non believer that salvation which includes repentance and faith is a gift of God. It's mm-hmm. nothing we can do on our own. So
2: mm-hmm. everything that brings us to Christ it comes from God.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it is one thing to... It's very important we understand and proclaim the gospel as a completely gift of God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, People who believe that faith precedes regeneration are more prone to the temptation to um, maybe compromise the message or use underhanded means to persuade... Because if I can just get this person to believe, to choose to believe, then all this good stuff happens. Whereas the person who believes that regeneration precedes faith says a, 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 an intrusive supernatural work of the Holy Spirit is needed through the word. And so there's no there's no um, way of tailoring the message to make it more palpable. It's like what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we've we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, we, but it's like through plainly, we just commend Christ. And he says, if anyone's blind, it's because the God of this world has blinded them. And the solution to that is God shines in our hearts. So he's saying, we don't have techniques to get over, get people to believe. The, the problem with unbelief is much deeper than that. And so it's, it's, it's totally beyond our ability to rhetorically get around or through our methods to get around. So we just proclaim the truth. And with persuasion, I mean, there's definitely persuasion, but we proclaim the truth and we wait for the, for God to turn on the lights, essentially. I'm paraphrasing
2: 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 6. But yeah, Jeff, did you have a thought? Um, just kind of if you switch the order of regeneration and, you know, faith mm-hmm. it would kind of, you seem like you're using faith and believe, mm-hmm. kind of like a synonymous yeah, so term, right? Yeah, if you switch the order of that you almost have to create two classifications of faith or belief, right? Mm-hmm. You have people who believe but haven't been regenerated Mm -hmm. it it, it really creates a i just think it makes things sticky and kind Mm -hmm. of creates you have to like really work at yeah this like oh they believe but they haven't been regenerated yet and can can you believe without being regenerated Right. you have to have a kind of belief that's possible without you have
0: to have saving
2: adequate belief possible without regeneration you know like if I'm talking with somebody who says, "I believe," mm-hmm. but there's no repentance along with that, they have been yeah. regenerated. Then you have the you've separated these steps out. Yeah. You put something in between them, yeah. and it really it just kind of, it creates just these sticking points and errors, and where you have to like kind of work around it, mm. versus just having the smooth. I've been regenerated by Christ and the Holy Spirit, and. Now I have faith and truth. It just—it it just, yeah. It's a much more sequential, easy yeah. series of steps versus having to finagle things to make it work.
0: Yeah, that's true, and and this is how we do theology. Like we want to let each piece of scripture speak, and then we also have to think through how do we put it together in ways that are the most coherent, right? And you can put it together one way and say, "Does this work?" And then you realize you're creating all these new theological problems that 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 you that. Don't match up. Don't line up very well with scripture, and but and then whatever this is, the best way to line it up will kind of align with with scripture in its wholeness. So I, I believe that this is an area where you start creating some big problems that are very hard to answer. Uh, yeah, Jeff. Yeah, because you you have verses like seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open. Mm-hmm. So this
2: is a person who's then regenerated is seeking. Mm-hmm. So there's there's some. Uh, the holy
0: spirit has to illuminate mm-hmm. that correct the the seeking yeah yeah seeking. the holy spirit yeah there you see non believers that are is seeking in a sense and i think i would say the holy spirit is drawing or convicting there's language like that yeah the holy spirit's doing a work yeah and, and in experience it, it's not all this isn't all happening you know, the, the word is working sometimes over a course of time before there's regeneration. But yeah, there can be. Yeah, John. Um, was this, uh, Reminding me of what Paul, when he was talking to the Corinthians, he was saying, you know, I planted Paul's water mm-hmm. and yeah. God was the one that made it grow made their faith grow. Yeah. It's, I think it's the same same kind of yeah. concept, right? Like planting and watering doesn't do anything if God is not right. doing. There's something kind of mysterious work. and organic that God himself has to do through the means. Good. We need to keep going. I'm so sorry, we're we're like woefully behind, so I am sorry for hands that I've had uh that, that went up. But um John five one, first John five one everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Wow, that's helpful. Everyone who is Look at the, the, the tenses. Everyone who believes, that's current, that's your status. Everyone who is a believer, something prior happened. You have been born of God. And the result of that being born of God is you believe. So everyone who believes knows, well, that one thing has happened to me. I've been born of God. I've been, I've received a new birth. Um, and the Bible refers to both faith and repentance as gifts. Um, and uh, so like uh, Acts five thirty-one to 32 it's interesting that both repentance and the Holy Spirit are are put kind of parallel with each other as gifts. Uh, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, that's Jesus, of course, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So repentance as a gift. He gives repentance. And we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So the the Holy Spirit is a gift and repentance is a gift. You also have... uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, he says, No one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. That confession, Jesus is Lord, is, is a um, it's kind of a, a marker of faith, right? It's, it's sort of like f- confession is sort of the, the action of faith. And so he's saying no one believes and confesses that Jesus is a Christ except the Spirit working in us. Um. And so faith and repentance, it's interesting. Some texts of scripture put them both together and say faith and repentance are kind of the parallel response to the gospel. Mark 1.15 is one of those. Acts 20 verse 21. Sometimes repentance alone is mentioned as a saving response to the gospel. So Acts 319 and, and 531. These are all in your handout, but they're all, they're all just together in one string. But it, if you look them all up. Some of them, Acts 3.19 and 5.31, repentance alone is is mentioned as how you respond to the gospel. Sometimes, faith alone is mentioned as how you respond to the gospel. Like uh, John 20, verse 31, Acts 8.12, and Acts 10.43. So sometimes the Bible says, repent and believe and you're saved. Sometimes it says, repent and you're saved. Sometimes it says, believe and you're saved. Why? How does that all work? I think the best way to pull it all together is the faith and repentance are essentially the same action viewed from two complementary viewpoints. Um, and one of them is, think about how, where we are in Adam. What, what, You've got God over here in Adam by nature. We are pointed toward or away from him. Away. Dead in sin. In the trespasses and sins. And then the call of the gospel is Jesus came. Jesus is the son of God. He died for you. He's been raised. Believe. So what do you have to do to Believe. You have to go from not, from being turned away from him to being turned toward him. And that turning is called repentance. So, so repentance is implied in the call to faith, to, to, to sinners, to, to believe. You're calling them to move directions, change directions, turn. Now what's important is repentance is not uh, new behavior. Repentance is the turn that generates new behavior. That's a very important distinction. You have like in Matthew three, eight, the Holy uh, John, the Baptist calls for fruit in keeping with repentance. It is a change that issues forth in a new kind of fruit that comes out of your life. The reason that distinction is important is because if, if you turn repentance, if you start including our new works in repentance, then that starts becoming how we get saved, right? You say, Oh, to be saved, you must repent. And repentance means doing good stuff. Uh-oh. <laughs> we're starting to violate salvation through faith alone, right? We're starting, to, uh, we're starting to mix works into the basis of our salvation. So we say that faith is the means. Repentant faith, because we turn away from darkness to, to light, that faith that grabs hold of Christ is the way we receive all his saving benefits. And that way, that change will result in fruit in keeping with repentance. If you have changed direction, you will have gradually new course of life. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson writes, "Repentance has as it, as its root a changed attitude to God, brought about through the work of the Spirit." So the Spirit makes us alive, and we are we turn to Christ in faith, um, and that is all a gift of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Paul. Go ahead. That statement you just said is very important. You said repentance is the what? Repentance is the change in attitude um, to God brought about by the work of the Spirit. Change of
1: attitude to Change in attitude to God. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That repentance is like. Um,
2: changing your
1: mind I and mean, mm-hmm. changing direction, mm-hmm. also agreeing with God when you yeah. once disagreed with God. Like, yeah, yeah. A stumbling block of the foolishness, now you're no longer stumbling and it's no longer foolish. Is that. Yes, yes. That?
0: Agreeing with God and and a, a change of mind that um, calls, that, that it, it, confession is saying with God. Like, so re- repentance would say, oh, God, you're right, I am a sinner. Like, we've heard this word of. Sin, righteousness, and judgment, right? And the spirits worked in us and suddenly we're like, you're right, God, I am a sinner. The convicting work of the Holy Spirit has gotten home and now I say with God, I now agree with God that my former course was hateful to him and offensive to him and now I I want Christ. I want to turn back to God. Yeah, good. So let's talk about sanctification and I have initial in here. When we talk about sanctification, usually just in our... Church life. What are we typically talking about? Set apart. Set apart. Yeah. Right. So holiness is that idea of sanctify for sure. But what what are we usually referring to? Like growth. Growth. Yeah. Very good. Very good. We're usually talking about the progress of life in Christ. Right. The day to day walk of growing in righteousness, growing in holiness, um, and that is a fine definition of one aspect of sanctification, which we could call progressive sanctification be becoming progressively holier in our practice but that's not all there is and Paul you said sanctify basically you're getting at the root idea of set apart or made holy that's what sanctify means just in general and so progressive sanctification is a way of being holier it's a way of the condition of our life increasing in holiness but the bible also uses the word sanctify in another way and um, so by the way next week we're going to look more at that progressive sanctification. Guess what? The Holy Spirit's involved in that. <laughs> should be no surprise. But the other aspect of holy making that occurs at the moment of conversion is what we could call initial or positional sanctification. And that is the Holy Spirit's presence itself makes us holy. The moment he indwells us, he gives us a status of holy. And you see this cropping up in two ways in the New Testament. One is the language of saints. Saints are not super Christians. They are Christians. And, uh, the other way you see it coming up is temple imagery. We looked at this with indwelling last time. But Paul, it's, it's crazy. If you know, The church of Corinth had major sin problems. In terms of the progressive sanctification spectrum, they weren't doing too well. If you read 1 Corinthians, you can see they weren't doing too well in the progressive sanctification. But it's amazing then that in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, in his address to them, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, You are sanctified, you are saints. And uh, why, Paul? They're pretty messed up, aren't they? And what Paul would say is, oh yes, but 1 Corinthians 6.11, he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So again, you even hear sanctification in the past tense. You have been, you can tell these are parallel, these are moment of conversion, parallel with your justification. You are brought into this holy status uh, through Christ by the Spirit of our God. And um, we we looked also at the temple imagery in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. that He says, you are God's temple. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. And then he says, you are holy. God's temple is holy. So all these three things mean the same. You are the temple of God. You are holy. The Spirit of God dwells in you. Those are all three ways of saying the exact same thing. You are holy because... The spirit has come to indwell you and make you the temple. So Christians individually and the church are holy from day one. You belong to God. You're set apart to God. The spirit has come into you and made you a sacred space, so to speak for God. And so much then of the new Testament's ethical instruction flowing from that is be what you are, be what you are. You are now holy act holy. (laughs) You are now, you have the gift of the Holy Spirit. So walk by the Spirit. You have the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. You see that? That's the, so much the pattern of New Testament practical instruction is be what you are, be and practice what you are in status in Christ. And holiness is a great example of that. Any questions about sanctification, holiness? We'll look at two more relatively quick. One of them is adoption. Um, and so Christ, this is great. Christ is the son of God. Um, and we're baptized into him by the spirit at conversion. One of the things we come to share in that is his is sonship to God. It's, it's his by nature, right? It's his eternally. He is the son eternally begotten by the father, but it becomes ours by grace in what's called adoption. So we come to be included into the sonship of God that Christ himself has by nature. And, uh, And so you see the spirit, again, it's union with Christ in the spirit that gives us to share in his sonship. So the spirit is called in Romans 8, 14 to 15, the spirit of adoption. And I think the sense there is the spirit who brings about our adoption, the spirit who um, causes us to be adopted in Christ. So he says, for all who are led by the spirit of God, are sons of God, for you did not Receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's great. All who are led, but he says all who are led by the Spirit of God, he means those who have the Spirit. If the Spirit's working in your life, you have him. You are a son of God because you have this Spirit who helps to, you to see that you are a son. He, call, he causes you to cry out in your heart, Abba, Father. Essentially, um, to give you assurance that you are in fact a son of God. And we're going to we're gonna look more hopefully next time at this ongoing work of assurance the Spirit works in us. But it's beautiful that we've been given this objective status of adoption as sons of God, and then we have the Spirit who united us to Christ and made us adopted sons, who's working in us so that we would know it and feel like God is our Father and know him that way. Any questions? I know it's quick. Any questions or thoughts about adoption? It's way more amazing and beautiful than what we've spent the time we've devoted to it. The final uh, category here is sealing. And we've talked about sealing last week a little bit, but when he comes to indwell, he seals us. We heard about Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed... With the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So he says the Spirit is a seal and a guarantee. Now a seal would be a wax seal that an important person would stamp to certify an official document. What function would that have? You're some official in the Roman government or something, and you want to send an official document and you stamp it with your seal in wax. What does that do? It's what? It's a, claim of it's a claim of a source. Yeah. It's just yeah. Exactly. What else? A sign of authority. A sign of authority. What else? Uh, wh- why do you need that claiming of a source? What happens if, if they didn't do that? To give it authority. It's true. To prove that it's true. Like think about if you didn't have that practice, anyone could just be sending documents around, claiming forgery, claiming to be from the the governor of whatever province, and you wouldn't know. You wouldn't be able to trust it. But you get that certified seal, you're like, oh, this is Governor so-and-so. I know this is from him. I can trust that this is him and not just some forgery. And that's that's what the Spirit is. The Spirit is God's assuring guarantee. Boom, you're mine. Stamp, boom, you belong to me because you have the Holy Spirit. And guarantee would be the idea of an earnest, kind of an old-fashioned word for it, an earnest or what we might call it, down payment. What does a down payment do? Well, first, it... Conveys that we are earnest. <laughs> it it puts sort of puts our uh, money where our mouth is on uh, something that we buy. It's like you are actually starting to pay for. Second thing it does is it it begins the payment that will ultimately be fulfilled later. So it's it says I mean business and I'm going to start paying for it. That's what down payment is, and that's what the spirit is. The spirit is the guarantee. He's he is God assuring us and guaranteeing for us, yes, all the glorious inheritance that is yours in Christ is coming to you. And, uh, and it begins with this down payment of the Spirit. Um, so the Spirit guarantees us and seals us that we belong to God and will receive all of our, our inheritance in Christ. Um, and uh, so the Father has sent Christ to redeem me and the Spirit to mark me as His—that's what we're supposed to experience by having the Holy Spirit. And um, because of that, what we look at next week, all the fruit of our lives that the Holy Spirit's presence produces, actually helps to just um, helps us to see that, like, oh wow, I am, um, I am uh, sealed by the Spirit. It's not like this—the uh, Spirit's seal comes and goes, but it's the evidence of the Spirit in us through good fruit, that we start to go, wow, I do have the Holy Spirit. And wow, I do belong to God. And I am going to receive all the inheritance of glory in the future that, that is mine in Christ. And and that's what God wants our lives to be like. He wants us to know that assurance. And that's why he gives us the Holy Spirit. So we are stamped on day one as belonging to God and redeemed, waiting for eternal glory with Christ. Uh, this is encouraging. One, one theologian, Michael Horton, writes, the sealing with the Spirit is an objective reality. One may not feel saved in every moment. Nevertheless, the Holy Spirit is the pledge that one is saved, feeling notwithstanding. Amen. That's encouraging. You ever feel not saved? (laughs) Do you ever wonder, you ever discouraged about your sin? Um, The fact that you have the Holy Spirit, that God has given you the Holy Spirit and brought you to believe and made you alive with Christ, and even the fact that you're grieving your sin, the sin that makes you discouraged and wonder if you're saved, that is all The sign that God has stamped you with the spirit and that should be a means of great assurance that he'll complete what he's begun in us. So, we were quick on this stuff, but any um, questions or comments on the adoption, the sealing of the spirit? Yeah. Asterisks. Oh, those are the passages we read. Sorry. I don't normally do that. In your handout, the passages, the asterisks were the ones that we read or were supposed to read if we had time. Some of them I had to rip through a little bit. But the other ones are supplemental, so you can look up for sort of more, um, more, yeah, just some that I alluded to or didn't allude to, but maybe back up what we saw. That goes for you at home. If you're, uh, we have the link to the handout in the live stream caption, so you can download the PDF and look at all the references there. Any other questions or thoughts? We've sure been given a lot in in Christ, in the Holy Spirit, in that moment of, of conversion, this rich, rich bouquet of uh, life-giving operations. Um, and so God wants us, uh, I just want to leave us with this, that God wants us to be assured that we belong to him. And and all all this is, I'm going to go back to Ephesians 1, it's to the praise of the glory of his grace. In fact, we were just in Ephesians 1 talking about what the Spirit did to seal us. It is all to the praise of his glorious grace that we we, we get this gift of salvation in the moment we believe. We don't know all this is happening, right? We just believe in Jesus. And then you look back, you look through the lens of scripture of what God says he's done in us and he's doing, and you're like, wow, I have just been dump trucked with blessings <laughs> that all came from outside of me, that all came um, from uh, independent of what I deserved and what I was able to do for myself. I was helpless and dead in sin, and God made me alive together with Christ and so that he could through the uh, ages to come pour out the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness in Christ. So, amen. Yeah, Paul. Pastor, you just said God wants us to be assured of our salvation and our blessings in Christ. And the Holy Spirit is a big part of our experience of that assurance. Well, let's close in prayer for the sake of time. If you have other questions or thoughts, uh, you can you can talk to me later. Father God, we praise you for giving us Christ the Redeemer and for sending your Spirit to um, bring redemption home to us in our actual experience. We didn't just need forgiveness; we needed to be um, made alive so that we could grab hold of Christ by faith. And you have made every provision from the plan in eternity past all the way through the cross and in our own experience and our history, and, and we're on this road of glory and blessing and salvation all the way to eternity future, uh, all we can do is praise you and thank you. We pray that you use these things. Even may these things uh, resonate in our souls in the week to come. May we meditate on these truths of your word and, and these things that the Spirit has done in us. Let's us hope and to give us assurance uh, to give us a clear vision for where we are headed and where you have, what you have promised us in Christ, um, so that we can live for you and we can keep putting away sin and keep growing in uh, the holiness that you have called us to. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.